You are listening to the Landmark Sermon Series, a sermon podcast nearly 40 years in the making. You'll hear the voices of our church's founding pastors, Dr. James Reeves and Alan McBrayer, as well as others who helped pave the way for City on a Hill beginning all the way back in the early 1980s. Our hope is that these sermons bless you and challenge you in the same way they have blessed and challenged so many others in the past. For more information about our church, visit www.cityonahilldfw.com. One of these days, she's going to get tired of me doing that to her at the last minute. Take your Bibles and turn to the book of Acts, chapter 6. Acts chapter 6 this morning. I'd just like to read verses 8 through 15. Acts chapter 6, verses 8 through 15. Story of Stephen. In Acts 6, he's already been introduced in the first seven verses. He's chosen as one of the first deacons in the church in Jerusalem. And then verse 8 picks up the rest of the story of Stephen and goes to the end of chapter 7. Luke tells us in Acts 6, verse 8, And Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. But some men from what was called the synagogue of the freedmen, including both Cyrenians and Alexandrians, and some from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and argued with Stephen. And yet they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly induced men to say, We have heard him speak blasphemous. And they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and dragged him away and brought him before the council. And they put him before, put forward false witnesses who said, This man incessantly speaks against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Nazarene, Jesus, will destroy this place and alter the customs which Moses handed down to us. And fixing their gaze on him, all who were sitting in the council saw his face shine like the face of an angel. Perhaps you've seen the coffee cup that um, has on the outside of it a guy who just looks like he's at the end of his rope, just completely frazzled. As a matter of fact, the hair is standing on end like some of you this morning, and the fingers are, are like this. And the, the caption beneath it says, I can handle stress. And then when you look on the inside of the cup as you're raising it up to take a drink, it says it's love, money, and power that get to me. Well, I don't know if love, money, and power get to you, but I know this. We live in a stress-filled society. As a matter of fact, some have called our society the pressure cooker society. You ever feel like you live in a pressure cooker you know what a pressure cooker does? It not only cooks you, it puts you under pressure. That's what a pressure cooker does. And we live in a society like that. All of us experience it. You've experienced it this past week. You'll go from this place today and maybe relax for the rest of the day. But then tomorrow, you'll be right back in the middle of it. Because there are demands that are made on every single one of us that just seem sometimes to be more than you can deal with more than you can handle. For instance, work. That four-letter word, work. Whether you enjoy your work or not, and I hope that you do, still there are times that your work places probably incredible demands upon you. If you work for someone else, you have a boss that demands that you perform to a certain standard, a certain level. If you are in business for yourself, 
then you know that you have to perform to a certain standard or a certain level, even to stay in business. And so work becomes a pressure on your life. But not only do you have work, you have families. Whether you're married or not, you've got family somewhere, probably most of you. You have parents that are placing pressure on you. You have in-laws that place pressure on you, don't they? Last night, we were at our Valentine party for uh, uh, the old people's class, the bald-headed teacher here, Jack, Jack Young's class, and uh, we did the oldie wed game. You know, y'all ever played the oldie wed game? Well, one of the questions where the men go off and answer questions and try to answer the answers that they think their wife is going to answer was, what is it about your mother-in-law that bugs you the most? And that was the most fun and the most interesting question because, you know, we've talked about the proverbial mother-in-law for so long that we sometimes we forget that it's really the truth. Not, not you, Margie, I'm sure, but, uh, but we really, some of us have really forgotten that it really is true. And some of you got real sweet mother-in-laws, and I do too, but she still bugs me to death. But I was reminded last night, as we were playing the game and talking about the questions about the mother-in-law, I was reminded about the story of the guy that took his mother-in-law to the doctor. Maybe you've heard the story. He took her in for the examination, and after the examination was over with, the doctor came out to give not only his diagnosis, but also to give his prescription for the mother-in-law. And he gave his diagnosis, and then he said, the prescription is she needs a hotter climate. So the son-in-law said, well, doc, how about Florida? The doctor said, no, not hot enough. He said, well, doc, how about Arizona? The doc said, no, not hot enough. He said, well, Doc, how about Death Valley? And the doctor kind of muttered, said, no, not hot enough. The guy stood there for a moment, and then he turned around and just walked out of the doctor's office, came back in a, in a moment or so and had a pistol in his hand, handed it to the doctor and said, here, Doc, you shooter, I just can't. <laughs> family pressures. That's family pressure. Not only do you have parents, not only do you have in-laws who smack their gum, not only do you have that, but you've got children. That's the private joke. You've got children who are putting demands on your life. If, if it's not PTA, it's soccer. If it's not soccer, it's basketball. Zach scored his first points yesterday, by the way, in basketball. And, and again, he's, he's proud. He's proud as he can be. He's, he's the tallest one on the team. Uh, you've got dance lessons. You've got going here and going there and, and all of the things that, that go into raising or rearing children in a modern-day society. Then on top of that, You've got a spouse, perhaps, if you're married. You've got a husband or a wife that demands your time, needs your time. Men, you've got a wife that needs your emotional, uh, and that puts pressure on you sometimes. Then add all of that to the fact that you are part of a church, and your church has demands on your time. There's Sunday morning worship. There's Bible study. There's Sunday evening life group. There's Wednesday night Awanas. There's choir. There's working on the new building. There's all of those kinds of things. And when you add all of that stuff and put with it the pipes that are leaking in the bathroom wall, you've got a formula for breakdown real quick. It's like the office sign that I saw once that a secretary with her head on her desk, again, her hair standing out on end, and the caption said, I'm going to have a nervous breakdown. I've earned it. I deserve it. Nobody is going to cheat me out of it. All of us agree. There's pressure. The question really is, how do you live? The bottom line is, really and truly, how do you live in that kind of environment? Acts chapter 6 tells us a story. It's a part of the story. 
about a man that knew how. His name is Stephen. I just read the passage to you a moment ago. I like Stephen. I think he's perhaps one of my favorite characters in the New Testament because Stephen is a regular kind of guy. He's not an insider. If you study the history of the New Testament and know a little bit about the characters and the individuals, you'll find that Stephen was not one of the Hebrew-speaking Jews. He was a Jew. He was a Jewish believer, but Stephen was a Greek-speaking Jew. And so because he was a Greek-speaking Jew and not a Hebrew-speaking Jew, he was not on the inside of the, of the Jewish people. He was one of those that the, the Jews of Jerusalem and, and of Judea would have kind of looked down on as an outsider because his major tongue was not the mother tongue of the Jews, was not the Hebrew language, but it was, in fact, the Greek language. And so he was an outsider in that sense, but he was an outsider in another sense that even though there's a good bit written about him in the Scripture, he was not one of the apostles. He was just a regular kind of guy. He was a layman. Even though he had been chosen to serve in the capacity as a deacon, what that really meant in Acts chapter 6 was just waiting table. It certainly was not a position of great honor and great respect. Although he had to meet certain spiritual qualifications, it was a position of service. He was not just an extraordinary kind of guy, but he lived his life in an extraordinary kind of way. As a matter of fact, when Acts begins to tell the story of this man, when we're introduced to him in the very first verses of the Acts, Acts the sixth chapter, then it says, if the rest of the story of the church is put on hold for two chapters as the story of Stephen's life is told. He lived successfully in a pressure-filled situation. Now I want to think about Stephen for just a moment before we look at the scripture. Because I've talked about your pressure-filled situation. Let's talk about his for a moment. Was he divorced from those kinds of pressures? No, he wasn't. Stephen was a, a man that had a job, just like you do. We're not told what he did for a living, but it was unheard of for a Jewish male in that day and time in that society to not have a trade, to not have some kind of gainful employment. So even though we're not told about it, Stephen was a man that got up and went to work every day of his life to provide for his family. That leads us to the second thing. Stephen was a man who probably had a family. Again, we're not told about his family, but once again, because of the culture of the day, because of the society of the day, it was virtually unheard of for a Jewish man to not be married, to not have a family. But on top of that, Stephen was a man that was a member of a church, just like you are. And it was a unique kind of church. It was a growing church. It was a church in Jerusalem. And the scripture says that daily men and women were being added to the church in Jerusalem. So it was a growing church and all of the demands and all of the pressures that are placed upon those who are part of a body like that, that's a growing body, were on Stephen. Not only that, it was an imperfect church. You read the sixth chapter of Acts and the reason they chose deacons because there was grumbling going on in the church. Isn't that good to know that it's not just today? But Christians have been grumbling from the beginning. We inherited it from the Israelites, by the way. It's, it's in the genes. It's genetic, okay? Grumbling among God's people. It just seems it's always been with us. Well, Stephen was a member of a church in Jerusalem that had grumbling. And so they, in the sixth chapter of Acts, they chose some men, seven men, to deal with the daily distribution of the food so that those, he, uh, those uh, uh, Jews there, the Jewish widows there who felt like they were being slighted because of their heritage and everything, then so they wouldn't feel slighted anymore to be a part of the solution to the problem. But with it all, 
Stephen still is a faithful proclaimer of the gospel of Christ. How did Stephen handle it all? The better question, as I said a moment ago, is how do you handle it all? How do you make it in a pressure-filled society? It's a timely question. There are three qualifications I want us to look at in Stephen's life this morning. And I just want to share with you um, for these next 25 minutes. I've skipped a, a great deal of things that I wanted to put in here. Um, and we're just going to try to hit what we can. Three things about Stephen's life, about how you live in a pressure cooker. First of all, Stephen did it because he was a man full of faith. Now, let me preface what I'm going to say to you this morning by saying this. I am not going to say anything revolutionary to you this morning. I'm not going to say anything you haven't heard before. As a matter of fact, the things I'm going to say are just basic kinds of stuff. But I'm convinced that it's the basic stuff that really matters the most. What could be more basic than the gospel of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ? But any child of God that ever gets tired of hearing the basic gospel message has a problem. We need constantly to be reminded of the basics of the faith. And so what I'm going to do this morning is looking at Stephen's life, remind you of three of the basics of the faith that we all need to be reminded of. And quite frankly, that I need to be reminded of today. First of all, he was a man full of faith. Acts chapter 6 says of Stephen, and it particularly says it of Stephen, it says, and they chose Stephen a man full of faith. Now, when it says that Stephen was a man full of faith, what that means to me is that his life was characterized by faith. That when you looked at the life of Stephen, the thing perhaps that you thought of the most, the thing that stood out the most in your mind as you looked at this man, Stephen, was that he was a man full of faith. His life was characterized by faith. Now, that says several things to me. It says, first of all, that Stephen's faith was not a crisis kind of faith. His faith was not the kind of faith that was only exercised in a crisis situation. Yes, his faith would sustain him in the crisis but his, faith was, his life was characterized by faith in all situations, not just in the crisis situations. His faith was the normal response to life. Now, I thought about this this week, about a man like Stephen, a man that the Scripture would say, a man who was full of faith. Everybody respects someone who is full of faith, do they not? In the Christian church, don't we? As children of God, when you find that rare individual that really and truly their life is characterized by faith. You respect that person because those people are the kinds of people that get things done. But those people, listen, their faith is always evidenced by actions. James chapter 2, verse 17. James just kind of cuts through it all and gets right to the chase and just goes right to the bottom line. He says, faith that is without works is dead. That's it. Faith that is not evidenced in the life, faith that is not evidenced by works, is dead. When you come to the great roll call of the faithful in Hebrews chapter 11, that's what the writer of Hebrews is trying to say in chapter 11. He's trying to say these were men and women of faith from the very beginning with Abram up to the New Testament. They were men and women of faith, but what the writer of Hebrews is trying to say, but their faith was evidenced in their life. They didn't just speak about faith, 
But now you look at the character of their life and you can go back and you can see how their faith affected the way they live. He begins with Abel. He says, Abel, quick sacrifice, then, then Cain. Enoch, by faith, was taken up and did not see death. Noah, he says, by faith, constructed the ark. Abraham, by faith, went to a land that God was going to show him. Sarah, by faith, conceived. Moses, by faith. Joseph, by faith. Isaac, by faith. And on through the chapter, it talks about, by faith, each one of these individuals accomplished the things that they accomplished. In other words, their faith was evidence in their actions. Now, Stephen was a man like that. Stephen was a man, listen, whose faith sustained him when he was waiting tables. Did you hear that? Stephen was a man whose faith sustained him when he was waiting tables. He was not an elitist, in other words. Stephen did not see waiting tables as being above him or beneath him. He didn't see it as being above us. He didn't see it as being beneath him. He was not an elitist. It was pure, simple, humble service. And this man is going to give his life as a martyr for the kingdom of God, for the gospel of Jesus. He's a man that preaches powerfully the gospel, but his faith is evident and it sustains him even in doing the menial task of waiting tables. And right after he waits tables in the early chapters of, uh, verses of chapter 6, we find Stephen in the synagogue preaching the gospel. What an incredible contrast. He's waiting tables in one moment. The next moment, he is preaching in the synagogue and is refuting the wisdom of the Jews that are there. Verse 9 tells us that Stephen is in the synagogue of a group that is called the freedmen. We don't know for sure a great deal about these folks, but it says that he's arg they're arguing with Stephen and they are unable to deal with his wisdom and his power. Now, who were the freedmen? The freedmen, most scholars agree, were probably Jews who had lived in Rome and had been freed from Rome. They had gained their freedom and they had come back to Palestine. And when they got there, it was kind of the birds of the feather flocked together kind of deal. They came to Jerusalem. They had been enslaved in Rome. They were Jew of Jewish heritage. And when they got there, they naturally are going to be again to flock together. So what they did is they formed a synagogue of their own. It's the homogeneous unit principle of modern-day church growth that's evidenced here in the, in the sixth chapter of Acts. They formed their own synagogue, and they worshiped together. They had those kinds of things in, in common together. So Stephen went right into the midst of the synagogue of the freedmen, and he began to preach the gospel. So Stephen's faith is sustaining him as he's waiting table. Stephen's faith then is sustaining him while he's in the synagogue preaching the gospel. Now, what's the big deal about that? Well, by this time, the apostles themselves have already been arrested twice for preaching the gospel. Stephen knew that. He lived in Jerusalem. He was a member of that church. So what are you talking about? The faith of Stephen sustaining him to preach the gospel. What's so difficult about that? You can preach the gospel without faith, can't you? Sure you can today. At Celebration Baptist Church right now, I can preach the gospel without faith, but I'll guarantee you, when Stephen walked into the synagogue of the freedmen, he knew it was going to ruffle feathers because every time the gospel was preached, it ruffled feathers, and the apostles had already been arrested twice. And so when Stephen went, he knew that he probably was going to be arrested, but what did he do? He went into the synagogue after waiting tables, and he preached the good news. Now listen, faith means 
Simply this, taking God at his word. Isn't that simple? We spiritualize it. We make it so difficult. But the bottom line is this. If you know what God has said, and you say to the Lord, you say, okay, Lord, I know you have said this, therefore, I will do that. Therefore, I will act upon that. What are you doing? You are acting in faith. You are taking God at his word. You are saying, God, you have said this thing, therefore, I accept that it is true, and therefore, I will act upon that truth. That's how Stephen lived his life. Jesus had said, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. Did you hear that? Mark 10, 45. Jesus said, even I didn't come for you to serve me. I came to serve you. Stephen heard that. Stephen knew that. So when Stephen is called upon to wait tables, Stephen doesn't say to the apostles, hey, look at that guy over there. He doesn't have the preaching ability that I've got. He, doesn't, he can't do the other things that I can do. Get that guy. It, uh, it's beneath me to wait tables. What does Stephen do? He remembered what even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And what did Stephen do? His faith sustaining serving tables. That's what it did. But then Jesus had also said, go and make disciples. Preach the gospel to all nations. Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach them to observe all that I've commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always. So Stephen whose faith sustains him serving tables, remembers also that Jesus said, go. So what does Stephen do? He takes Jesus at his word. He said, Jesus, go. So I'm, it, Jesus said, go. So I'm going. And he went and he preached the gospel. Do you see the simplicity of the thing? It's so cotton pick and simple that we don't get it. It's just so simple, we don't get it. We have this idea and this mentality that faith is some abstract thing that's out there. Faith is not some abstract thing out there. Faith is taking the word of God and saying, okay, God, you said it, I'll do it. And that's what Stephen did, and his faith sustained him, whatever he did. Now, not only does faith have implications for how we live our lives externally, but listen, faith has implications for what we receive internal. A few weeks ago, in the life group study that we're going through on the fruit of the Spirit, by the way, if you have a life group leader that is not taking you through the study on the fruit of the Spirit, you need to bring him up before the, the group and discipline him. Because this is one of the best things we've ever done in the life group. A few weeks ago, as we were studying the fruit of the Spirit, joy. You know, Galatians 5.22 says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy. The second one in the list. We're taking a different one each week. This week is goodness. And the study on, on joy, my life group had one of those uh, serendipity kinds of moments. Uh, one of those moments when something that I hadn't planned and I hadn't seen when I put the study together or anything. It was just one of those things that in the process of the discussion and the give and take there in the living room of talking about what this meant and how it practically applied, that this truth just kind of began to come together. And it didn't just come from me. It kind of came a piece 
at a time from different members in the group. And then all of a sudden, it's like a light turned on for all of us, and we saw this truth. And it was a, it's a tremendous experience when the Lord reveals something and shows you something like that. The passage we were studying is out of Luke chapter 24 about joy, trying to illustrate what real, meaningful, and lasting joy is all about. Let me tell you the, the story of Luke 24, if you weren't there that night or your group didn't do it. Jesus has already been resurrected. And Jesus has appeared to at least one of the, of the 12, 11 of them by this time because Judas is gone, but Jesus has appeared to at least one of the 11. But then he also appears to two disciples that are unnamed who are walking from Jerusalem to the road on the road to Emmaus, which was their home, a few miles outside of Jerusalem. This is Jesus has been crucified, he's been placed in the tomb, and they don't know he's been resurrected. So they're walking along and they're talking about, oh, how we'd placed our hope in, in this Jesus as the Christ, as the Messiah. And then he went and got himself crucified. And, and the Lord appeared right in the middle of these two on the road to Emmaus. And he's talking with them and they didn't recognize him. And they get to the place and they, they say, well, why don't you just go ahead and eat with us? And when Jesus broke bread, the scripture says that something about the way he did that or whatever they recognized Jesus instantly and realized it was the resurrected Christ who had been crucified, and he instantly was gone from their presence. Well, you can imagine what these two in Emmaus did. Man, we got to get back to Jerusalem because the church in Jerusalem is crying about Jesus being crucified, and we've seen him. He's resurrected. So they ran back to Jerusalem as quickly as they could get there, and they went to the disciples. And they said, you won't believe this. And they didn't. <laughs> But Jesus is alive. Jesus is resurrected. And you can imagine the, the, the scene that's going on there. All the, the 11, they're wanting to believe it so bad, but none of them do. They're wanting real bad to believe it. And there's a lot of backslapping and there are a lot of hoorahing because nobody wanted to be the wet blanket. Nobody wanted to throw cold water on the celebration there. And about that time, Jesus appears in their midst as these two disciples are telling them that Christ has risen from the tomb. And you know what the scripture says that the disciples did? 40, or it says that they became frightened because they thought they were seeing a spirit. Now by spirit, they're not referring to a Holy Spirit. They're referring to an unholy spirit. They didn't think they'd seen the spirit. They thought they'd seen a spirit. They thought something is going on here. There's a demonic presence with us. There's an unholy spirit that is revealed in our midst. Now, they've been listening to these disciples say that Jesus had been resurrected. When Jesus appeared in their midst, they recognized him, but they didn't believe it was him. They thought that it was a spirit that was manifesting itself in their midst. Verse 40 tells us something very important in Luke 24. It says, for joy, they could not believe it. Now, listen, for joy, they could not believe it. That tells me that while those two on the road to Emmaus were telling about Jesus being resurrected, the disciples were rejoicing with them. They're going, man, this is great. This is great. But when Jesus appeared in their midst, they were afraid and didn't believe it and thought that it was a spirit. And because of joy, because of wanting it so bad, but not believing it when Jesus appeared in their midst, their joy turned instantly to fear. Now, here's the truth that came out of this in my group. Joy that is based on unbelief quickly becomes fear. 
They had joy. In fact, they didn't believe it for joy. But their joy was not based upon belief. They didn't believe Jesus had been resurrected. They were just having joy. <laughs> Something to rejoice about. They had had anything to rejoice about in three or four days. And so when these two said that he was risen, they quickly got on board wanting to rejoice, wanting to rejoice, but they didn't believe it. They couldn't believe it was true. So when Jesus appeared in their midst, their joy instantly turned to fear. And then Jesus said, it's me. Don't worry, it's me. And then Jesus took a meal with them and he talked with them. And the, the, the story ends by the disciples becoming convinced that it was Jesus. And then right there at the very end of the chapter, verse 52, it says, and they returned to Jerusalem with great joy. Second time the word joy has been used in this chapter. This time it's great joy. They returned to Jerusalem with great joy. What's different here? This joy is based upon faith. That's the difference. They believe now, and their joy is lasting, and it never goes away. The first time in Luke 24, it talks about their joy is based on unbelief. And when joy is based on unbelief, it quickly turns to fear. It quickly goes out the window. But when joy is based on faith, believing that God will do what he said he would do. Jesus said he would be resurrected, but they didn't believe it. They were in unbelief. They were in a condition of unbelief. So when he appeared in their midst, their joy became fear. But when they believed that he had been resurrected, their joy was lasting. And it says that they went to Jerusalem with great joy. You see, folks, faith is just taking God at his word. Had the disciples taken Jesus at his word when Jesus said, I will go into the tomb, but three days I will rise. Had they believed that, their joy would have been lasting. And when he appeared in their midst, it wouldn't have turned to fear because it would have been based upon faith, upon belief. I came across a book not long ago, a little book called Why Christians Burn Out. And the author makes this insightful statement. He says this. He says, my faith for salvation was in Christ, but my faith for service was in myself. He's giving his personal testimony about why he burned out. And then he wrote a book about it that later, Why Christians Burn Out. And he said this, My faith for salvation was in Christ, but my faith for service was in myself. Do you hear what he's saying? I came to Jesus in faith. I was saved by faith, but I quickly then quit living by faith and started living in unbelief and eventually burned out. You see, faith, faith like a man like Stephen had, is a faith that sustains. It sustains when we're waiting tables. It sustains when we're in the place proclaiming the good news of Christ. It's a faith that sustains joy. It's a faith that sustains peace. But joy and peace that are based on unbelief don't last. They're fleeting. When the bottom falls out, when the heat's turned up on the pressure cooker, then immediately joy and peace go out the window when they're based on unbelief and not based upon taking God at his word. Now, folks, that's a sermon. I could stop right there. In fact, I am going to because I don't want to muddy the waters with anything else. I want you to hear that. I'll, I need to hear that. 
He was also a man full of the Holy Spirit. I was going to talk about that for about 30 minutes. He was a man full of grace. Well, I wanted to talk about that for about 30 minutes because it says when they looked at the face of Stephen, verse 15, it says they gazed on him and they saw his face shine like the face of an angel. Good grief, they're about to put the man to death. They're about to stone him to death. In fact, they do at the end of chapter 7. And you remember what it says about him? While he is being stoned to death, he looks to the heavens and he says, Father, don't hold this against them. My soul. Where does that come from? It comes from a man who's solidly based in faith in the Lord God. It's a man who's filled with the Holy Spirit, who's submitted to the Holy Spirit. It's a man who's able then to live his life in grace. He's grace. I said I was going to quit. <laughs> I can't. I've got to read this quote to you. Lloyd Ogilvy says this about this particular passage. He says, The word grace has tremendous implications here. Stephen had been healed by Christ's unlimited, unmerited unearned love. He was a released man. Defensiveness, self-justification, and competitiveness were gone. Graciousness became the discernible trait of his personality. He had the disposition of Christ. Faith had gotten him started. Grace kept him going, and power was the result. Man, when the temperature was turned up in the pressure cooker and he's on his knees, his life blood dripping out of him from the bruises and the cuts of the stones with which they stoned him to death. The man whose face shone like an angel looks to the Heavenly Father and says, Father, don't hold this against them. What grace? What grace? Faith got him started. The Holy Spirit gave him power. And grace was the result. Stephen, a man full of faith, simply taking him at his word. Boy, it's so simple that it's so difficult. Because we want to make it difficult. But there. How do you live in the pressure cooker? The way you live in the pressure cooker is to begin to walk by faith. Just take God at his word. Are you out of work? What did Jesus say? Now hear this. This is not escapism. This is faith. To the lilies of the field, birds of the air, here are all the illustrations Jesus gave in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, you are more important than any of these. So he says, why are you anxious of what you wear tomorrow? Why are you anxious about this and anxious about that? Then what did Jesus first? The kingdom of God and his righteousness. Now, our choice when we're in a situation like that, when you're out of work or when you're not being paid, what it, what it takes to sustain your basic needs of life is what do you do? Do you quit? No. Do you just quit your job and everything and say, okay, Jesus, I'm just going to trust you in faith that you're going to provide? No, that's, that's not what he means. It means you do everything that God has provided for you to do, and then what do you do? 
You trust him. You trust him. You don't have any choice. You trust him. Is your marriage in difficulty? What do you do? Will you seek wise counsel? You spend a great deal of time on your knees. You communicate. And then you take him at his word. His word says, greater is he that is in you than he is in the world. That means he that is in you is able to overcome those obstacles, that, those barriers that have been built in your marriage. Are you having a difficult time with your children? What do you do? You get into the word. You find out what the word of God says about how you're supposed to deal with your children. And you begin to say, okay, Lord, I haven't done it for 35 years, but I'm going to start now. And you trust God to honor his word. You make the application of where you are. I don't know where you are. The application for me for the last years has been that pile of brick and mortar that's going up on 1140 Morrison Road. And now there have been times when I trusted God and there have been times when I haven't in the midst of that. There have been times when I exemplified grace once or twice and there have been many more times when I didn't. And I look back over that and I think, gosh, don't I ever learn? No, I'm just like you. I'm just stupid. Let's pray.